From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. It was the late 19th century. The Civil War had ended more than a decade ago. Reconstruction was coming to an end across the South. The battles between the U.S. Army and Native Americans, which overlapped the Civil War and spanned decades, were coming to an end. And American government leaders were looking for ways to integrate Native Americans into the white man's way of life. They created a system of boarding schools forcing Native American children to leave behind their Indian language and traditions. American military leader Richard Henry Pratt considered progressive for his time because he believed Native Americans were as capable as the white race if given the opportunity, opened the Carlisle Industrial School in 1879. The mission of the school, to kill the Indian and save the man. Carlisle offered a subpar education and trained its students to perform low-level jobs. While there, about 200 children died, perhaps from the combination of a brutal lifestyle and exposure to European diseases, for which they had little to no immunity. A cemetery holding the remains of students is still on the campus of what is now the U.S. Army War College. But some Indian tribal officials say they can't fully heal from this intergenerational trauma until they bring their loved ones home. Filmmaker Jeff O'Gara wrote, directed, and co-produced the documentary Home from School, The Children of Carlisle. And he joins me now from West Virginia Public Broadcasting in Charleston. Jeff O'Gara, welcome to Coastline. Thank you, Rachel. Glad to be here. And, And thanks to you and also to West Virginia Public Media for letting this happen. Yes, we're very glad we could all make this work. Home from School, The Children of Carlisle screens at Django's Playhouse on February 24th, 2023, as part of the Southern Circuit Tour of Independent Filmmakers. Jeff O'Gara, when we first spoke, you didn't think you were the right person to talk about this film, but you wrote it, <laughs> you directed it, you produced it. It's your film. Who do you think should be talking about this and why not you? Sure. Well, there's, uh, I suppose, as a journalist and a a, a kind of a greedy journalist who loves a good story, I would say it is something I wasn't about to let pass by. I wanted to do this story. But I think that when the public, when when people want to learn more about the story behind the story, about what the Native American boarding schools were all about and, and the impact that they have even today on Native American populations, the people you really want to hear from are, in fact, those who experienced it, the Native Americans themselves. So oftentimes when I'm out circulating with the film and and we do little panels and we talk to audiences, uh, I'll have with me Jordan Dresser, who's an associate producer on the film, who happens to be Northern Arapaho, a talented filmmaker himself. um, And and what you find, not surprisingly, is a lot of the questions are directed right at him. You know, you've been through this, your family, maybe your grandparents were in one of these boarding schools, maybe even your parents. Tell us what that's like. Tell us what that how you feel that in your family, in your culture, in your community life today. So that's what I mean by that. And I think long term, it's going to be more and more stories like this will be told by the people who experienced them or their descendants. Yes. And, and of course, your documentary 
very clearly explains the trauma and and some of the things that have come to light about what happened at the Carlisle School. But you are focused specifically on a couple of tribes here. Can you talk about the Wind River Reservation? Where is that? Who lives there now? Yeah. So the Wind River Reservation is really kind of in the heart of Wyoming, the state of Wyoming. Uh, It was formed in the late 19th century as a home for the Eastern Shoshone tribe, and eventually they were joined there by the Northern Arapaho tribe not long after um, the Indian Wars came to an end in the the 1880s, 1870s, I should say. Um, Those two tribes occupy it. Historically, those were two tribes that were often at at odds with each other. They didn't come from the same background, same language stock, but they ended up ultimately sharing a reservation, which was not all that uncommon in that period when the American government was trying to get nomadic Indian tribes to settle in distinct areas away from the areas that um, non-native settlers were moving into. The, the, the um, American colonial folks, you might say, or d- descendants of the colonial folks, European stock, that were all moving west and looking for places to be. Anyway, that's what Wind River is. It's really one of the nicest pieces of property, if that's the right way to put it, because it, it has this beautiful country that extends from the plains all the way up to the crest of the Rocky Mountains. Um, so, you know, some wonderful territory. But at the time they moved on to it, really harsh conditions. Um, you know, tribes were had been running all over the West uh, trying to survive, really, and find a place to stop, uh, find a place where they could really stay and be safe and keep their families safe. Um, when they arrived at Wind River, there were a lot of um, things lacking. They were supposed to become agricultural, but there were no implements to do that. Um, like a lot of tribes, the uh, various things that were promised in treaty negotiations didn't come. Uh, so it was a tough time. And, and the population of Native Americans nationwide had been vastly reduced by disease, by hardship, by war. Um, anyway, these, two, these are the two tribes that were at Wind River. They're the only, it's the only reservation within the boundaries of the state of Wyoming. And so, in a sense, they are the only two resident tribes in Wyoming today. How did you come across the story? Well, I'd been in Wyoming for quite a few years, quite a few decades, really. And I'd come out to edit an environmental publication, High Country News, but stayed on finding there were just so many stories to write, uh, so many things I wanted to cover as a writer. I was a print journalist at the time. Um, I had written a book uh, about the water wars in the West between Indians and non-Indians very much featured the Wind River Reservation. I knew a lot of people there, and um, I'd, I'd like to think we'd develop some good trust relationships. Um, and when I always knew there were great stories that weren't being written in the West and even more so in the Native American community, and as I got to know more and more people, I would occasionally be told about something that was occurring that was of, of real interest like this. Um, Yufna Soldierwolf uh, was working at the Northern Rappo Tribal Historic Preservation Office. She had been working as generations before her had to make some kind of a deal with the U.S. Army to allow them to retrieve the remains of Northern Rappo children who back in the 19th century had been sent to Carlisle and had died there and were buried there. Um, she came to me and talked to me about it and I thought that's a that's a really amazing story, and like so many others, will be a story about frustration, where you never quite break through and solve the problem. And I'll write that. Well, then she came to me and said, "Whoa, the U.S. Army has said we can come and get our children, so we're going to do it." 
And at that point, I was working for Wyoming Public Television. I thought, this is just a, an amazing story that we need to cover. It's, it's, a, it's made for film in a way. Uh, so that's really where it began. Um, there's a process we go through after that, which we can talk about, of getting permissions. Yes. Because, of course, I'm a non-Indian wanting to work on a story that involves um, the Northern Arapaho tribe. And um, there's some hoops you should go through to do that. Yes. And I, I do want to talk about that and, and the sensitivity with which you treated um, the po- so much more than just the point of view, the whole ethos with which you approached telling this story. But first... Uh, yeah. you you have some members of the tribe talking about their impressions of what this school was. And so I just want to hear this clip that we have um, just discussing uh, who actually went to these schools. Great. And uh, we don't have that clip right now, so we will. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we will have to get back to that. But well, we can, we can say what we can imagine what it was like. I mean, these are kids that had probably never been far from the circle of their family and and tribe, in in the Rockies and the Plains area. All of a sudden, they're shipped on a train thousands of miles to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. When they get there, they're stripped of their traditional clothing. Their hair is cut. They're told. You're not going to speak your language anymore. You can only speak English, which, of course, they didn't know a word of at the time. And we're talking some very young kids, some children. You know, it, it, it's really quite astonishing. No real recourse for getting back to their families. Think of the distance we're talking about here and the fact that most tribes, including the northern Arapaho, were impoverished at the time. So there they were. Whole new world. It's hard to imagine. And that's one of the, the striking elements of this particular story. There were boarding schools like this around the country, and we're talking about children specifically in the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming, and this school was in Pennsylvania. Were, yeah. were there many other boarding schools on the East Coast and that far away? No. Uh, this was a rarity, but it's important because it was the first boarding school to be set up outside of reservations. So various church groups funded by something called the Civilization Fund had come into reservations as they were forming around the West and built schools, sometimes day schools, but often boarding schools even on the reservation, usually run by a church group, the Episcopalian, the Episcopalians, the Catholics, uh, various churches, Mormons, in fact, um, would come in and, and run these places uh, and often, again, take the children out of their homes and have them board, partly as a way of kind of separating them from the culture and what they considered maybe the bad influences of their families. Carlisle was new because it was like, let's go a little further than that. Let's, let's really separate them. And that's the best way that we can inculcate them with the new culture, the new history, the new really personality that we intend for them to have with, and again, there was a well-meaning side to this, the idea that this may be the only way they can survive in this new society. So again, Carlisle was the first. There would be many more boarding schools built off reservation, but it was the one that became the model for so many others. That's right. And even at the very beginning of this, I guess I'll have to ask you about this when we come back, but I'm just wondering if the tribal elders at the time even understood where they were sending their children. You're listening to Coastline. Documentary filmmaker Jeff O'Gara is with us today after this short break. 
how the buried stories of brutal boarding schools for Native American kids have been breaking through into mainstream or white American awareness. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn for Coastline. You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Jeff O'Gara is my guest today. He's the writer, director, and co-producer of the documentary film Home from School, The Children of Carlisle, which screens at Django's Playhouse on February 24, 2023, as part of the Southern Circuit Tour of Independent Filmmakers. And Jeff O'Gara, one of the things that you did with this film was so carefully use the voices of the members of the tribe themselves to describe um, how people felt, what the perceptions were. This is very much through the lens of, of the members of the tribe. And so we're about to listen to this clip. Can you just tell us who's speaking and what we're about to hear? Sure. I think we're, we're going to start with Mark Solderwolf, who is a tribal elder, um, and the father of the woman who actually instigated this attempt to repatriate remains from Carlisle School. But what they're talking about is what, what was the mindset that they understood. And uh, i got to say, Native Americans were very savvy, even at that time, that there was a transaction going on here with the new ruling class, the, the white America that was gradually moving to take over the West. So when their children were going off to boarding schools, it was a kind of transaction. They were trying to survive. They were trying to keep their tribe and their families alive. And they had fairly clear perceptions, as you'll hear when Mark and others talk about this, of what was going on when these kids were sent off to school. So why don't we listen to that clip? The white man wanted you to learn his way, 100%. Sharp nose. He said, I want you to go to school to learn the white man's way. So when you come back, you can tell us what the white man is like and everything, the weapons and the way he talks and the way he thinks. And it wasn't just Sharp Nose. It was a lot of our other war chiefs who sent their children to a school far away from here, to Carlisle. And it was setting that precedence of saying, we need to do what hopefully is going to be a better future for us. Imagine being a 13-year-old boy, to be able to go out and go out to these Indian wars with your uncles and your grandpas and your father, who's a war chief. I mean, that's huge. Their dads all being leaders, tribal leaders of their bands. A lot of them were at Custer's Last Stand, Greasy Grass. A lot of these little boys were running ammunition. They were holding horses. And they were actually learning how to be protectors and how to be leaders. Going from that to a 13-year-old shipped off to Carla and be told, you know, who you are isn't right. Let's take the savage nature away from you. Let's take that away and make you a real man. 
that idea, Jeff O'Gara, this is a clip from Home from School, The Children of Carlisle, that white people were teaching these kids that who they are at their most basic was wrong is just, I, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking and gut-wrenching to listen to. But can you explain why white people were so invested at the time in taking Native American children out of their tribal lands and putting them into these white schools? Well, it's, you know, it's hard to put yourself back in that time completely, but we have some evidence of it. There were oh, writers like progressive reformers like Helen Hunt Jackson wrote a book about Native Americans in the late 19th century and, and the sort of tragedy of the reservations, which in fact at that time uh, were so impoverished and, and were in fact uh, in many cases very dangerous places and uh, harrowing places to live because there simply was no way to feed everybody and take care of everybody. So there was this movement nationally that said, we've got to save the Indians. And Richard Henry Pratt stepped up partly because he had great experience through the Indian Wars and his shepherding of prisoners, Native American prisoners, to Florida, where they were imprisoned after the war, and learning as he did that, hey, these guys are sharp. You know, they've been scouts. They, they learn the language quickly. They can function in this new society, and I'm going to help them do that by taking them to school, basically. Then he got the bigger idea of let's set up a campus somewhere where we can take them away from that, what, again, some viewed as that damaging culture on the reservations and within the tribes. We'll take them away to Carlisle, and we will sort of remake them in our image. Um, you can say it's well-meaning, but you can also say it was enormously damaging, as you can imagine, to the psyche of these, of these children. Um, and, and, and again, some of them, yeah, excuse me. Yeah, no, that's fine. You described a, earlier a little bit about why this was so traumatic for kids. I mean, they were traveling so far from home, so there was there was no connection with home at this point. There were no cell phones. There weren't computer. There was just no connection, and their their hair was cut. They were stripped of their tribal regalia. They weren't allowed to speak their own language or participate in any of their traditions. But even that doesn't come close to capturing the intergenerational trauma and pain that's, that comes through in your documentary, Home from School, still very much alive today among these yeah. affected tribes. Um, yeah. And there was we a— We come back— Go yeah, ahead. I was going to say, we come back again and again to an image that was taken. They had a professional photographer that worked at Carlisle, and he would take sort of before and after images of the children as they arrived— when you see the group from Wind River arriving in 1881, these are kids. And, I mean, it is heartbreaking. You look at those faces, they're so brave. Yeah. They're in a completely strange place. They're facing a future that they have no idea what it is. It just sticks with you. You can't let it go. Yeah. And we, we have another clip. And I think just before this, there's a, a young Native American man in your documentary who, who talks about how— they're still in shock. Uh, and that's, that's not who's speaking here, but let's listen, and then I want you to tell us about it. Sure. We live in a beautiful area, an amazing area. We have beautiful families. We have beautiful children. We have our grandparents. We have people that speak our language. We practice our traditions. 
we practice our ceremonies and we're still here. I mean, that's amazing. I tell my kids that every day, but we're always waiting for the next bad thing to happen. This has become our norm as a people to live in this chaos and this drama and this hurt and this pain, the grief. We didn't have relocation. We didn't have um, you know, the Allotment Act. If we didn't have the boarding schools, as a people, a lot of times we're in denial of these things that happened. I mean, nobody wants to admit all the horrible things that have happened. We want to not even think about those tragedies. At the early times, the school systems were here on the reservation, were attended by predominantly uh, Shoshone students. And eventually when the Arapaho tribe joined the tribe here, they also became students here. A lot of them were forced to attend the schools. Everything was so foreign that they had no idea how to deal with it. The treaties promised education but it was a white man's education. They sent the churches in to provide boarding schools or day schools to educate the child in a religious way. When they went in, they had kerosene put in their hairs to get rid of lice, whether they had it or not. I mean, it was just the attitude that when they came in, they were, and I don't even want to say, say the unclean. And that's a clip from the documentary Home from School, The Children of Carlisle, directed, written, and co-produced by Jeff O'Gara, my guest today. Jeff, that last person who talked about the children having kerosene put in their hair because school officials saw them coming in as unclean, and she even had a hard time saying that. Can you tell us about her? Sure. Well, that, that, that's Michelle Hoffman. She actually was the superintendent of the Wyoming Indian Schools for years and still lives um, in, in the area out there at, at Wind River. Um, Michelle is, is not a member of either of these tribes, but she is a revered person because she did such a wonderful job with the schools. The new schools, I, I, this will jump ahead a little bit where we are in the documentary, but you know, today on reservations like Wind River, there are often public schools with Native Americans on the, on the school boards essentially helping to shape them into schools that will really serve the community. So that's part of what Michelle's done in her career, has worked on a, in a school system that really was oriented towards the reservation. It's still a struggle. And one of the things that I think we, we learn as we worked on the documentary is how many people of even contemporary generations suffered from the, the sort of passed down effects of the boarding schools. Grandparents who would say, when a, when a small child began saying a few words of Arapaho, don't do that, don't do that, don't speak that, speak English. Because in their lives, they were terrorized when they spoke the language. They were essentially punished for it and told not to do it. So there, there are always these ramifications. Grandparents, again, often didn't even speak about the boarding school experience. They simply wouldn't. And those, that includes both the boarding schools on reservations, which were often church-run, but were also sometimes run by the federal government, and these off-reservation boarding schools like Carlisle and several others that grew all around the country. I, I gotta give you a little bit of a number here. Something like over 80% of Native American children in the late 19th century were taken away from their families and put in boarding schools. I mean, just imagine those numbers. And this is in a population that had already been 
hugely reduced by disease, by warfare, by all of the things that were going on at that time in, in the West and in the world. Yeah, that's just a stunning thought. And similar to so many crimes perpetrated by and approved of by uh, white supremacists, the white majority government during this era, the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Uh, you know, I think about Wilmington certainly has a sort of parallel kind of story with African-Americans. There was a bloody coup d'etat in 1898 in which a white cabal came in and forced uh, black elected officials out of office at gunpoint, killed an unknown number of people, drove African-American residents and property owners and business owners out of town. The horrors of that didn't really come to light officially until the late 20th century. And this sounds like a similar kind of track. How and when did white people start to get curious about what happened? And and how long has it taken to make this a part of the national record? How has it been kind of seeping through the cracks and coming out? Well, that's, that's a great question because, what, you know, we're in a big debate nationally now about what do you teach in the classroom? What is allowable, especially when the political world starts invading um, the educational world? There's a lot of gaps in the history books. I remember I interviewed David McCullough once, and he was saying how every 10 years you need to do a new biography of, say, the founding fathers of Thomas Jefferson, whoever he might be referring to. And I thought, why? I mean, once you got the facts, why do you do that? Well, you do it because there are new perspectives that you might not have had when the last history was written. There are new facts that are unearthed. There's new archives that are found. There's always something new, and there's always a, uh, it's always worthwhile to do that rethinking. In some cases, and this is a good example of it, and I think you have some examples in Wellington as well, things are just left out completely from the history books. The boarding school era, not there. You could go into a lot of classrooms, even in, in communities adjacent to reservations. It's not taught. So one of the things we do when we do a documentary like this is we create education modules, short pieces that can be used in the classroom with teaching guides to go with them so that teachers can incorporate this into that larger history they're telling. And again, I think in most of our communities, people want to know the real history. They want to know the complete history. I hope that's true. So that's part of what we do with a documentary like this. We kind of fill in one of the missing chapters. And so I'm assuming then that your teaching modules would be going into schools and classrooms where they're open to this kind of curriculum. Have you gotten pushback in any way? Well, not yet. <laughs> I don't know if we will or not. I mean, they have to be used. Somebody's got to pick them up. And there won't be any pushback until, I suppose, some teacher in some corner of the world picks one up and puts it in the classroom and some parent complains and some politician starts you know, waving that flag. What we do with them, we've, this documentary has aired on Independent Lens on PBS a couple of times now. Um, those modules will go into the PBS system, which has um, sites, websites, where you can go to get educational pieces that attach to the various um, documentaries, historical pieces that they've aired. Uh, we also put them up at Wyoming PBS. They'll be available there. And at our own website at Caldera Productions, which is our company that produced the documentary. So they're, they're, they'll be available. Um, whether teachers pick them up and the teaching guides that we provide as well, we, we don't even know. It's, it's very early in that process right now. You uh, have somebody, a, a white man in the documentary, and I'm going to mangle his last name, so I'm not going to try 
It starts, Jim, it starts with a G. He talks about how he knows this history is important to Native Americans, but it's been almost completely unknown to the rest of the population in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Do you know what the local conversation is like in Carlisle, and have you screened this documentary there? We have to a full theater, which was quite wonderful, and then we did a panel afterwards with myself and some Native American representatives. Um, Jim Gerentzer, uh, who the person you're referring to, um, is a good example of that. I mean, he's a historian. He's an archivist. And he's doing amazing work right now at Dickinson College to assemble photographs and other documents from the Carlisle period. But as a young man and as a student, he knew nothing about it. And he was in Carlisle. He just, it just wasn't talked about. I see that in Wyoming. I mean, we live in a community right next to the Wind River Reservation. And, you know, my, my wife and I happen to have a lot of friends there, partly because she is an attorney who works for the Northern, did work for the Northern Rappo tribe. But um, we have lots of friends who just don't know anybody on the reservation. And geez, I mean, these are like people living down the street in a way. So it happens. And it happened in Carlisle, clearly. Um, I think Native Americans were viewed as curiosities. They would come out and look at them when they came in on the train. And again, I look at the faces of those little kids in the photographs and imagine what that must have felt like for them. Yeah. You you have other white scholars in this film. Uh, not all of the scholars are white, but how did you think about that when when it came to deciding how and whether and when to use voices from white people who for years helped to keep these facts buried? And I don't, of course, mean specifically the people in your documentary, but it, right. it's the white majority that's done that. So uh, how do you think about that? Well, you kind of encounter it here and there, and I encounter it, of course. People have, have very correctly gotten up and said, why would you make this? You know, shouldn't somebody else be doing that? And I, I work with Native American producers now, and I, I, again, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but occasionally now I'm able to step back and say, we, we did a documentary this year on missing and murdered indigenous women. My colleague Jordan Dresser, who's Northern Arapaho, is the producer. I'm just the executive producer standing in the background. So that's coming, but it is perfectly right for somebody to get up and say, there's capable Native American producers who could have done that documentary, just as it as there are Native American scholars who can provide commentary. In this case, though, we, we had to find those scholars who had really immersed themselves in the boarding school and the Carlisle story. So someone like um, uh, Jackie Fears, I'm going to get her last name. I'm going to mangle a name here too. But anyway, our, she's from Leeds University in, in Great Britain. Um, excellent commentary. And she knew some of the international situations in Australia and New Zealand and elsewhere where indigenous people had been similarly treated and mistreated. Yes. So she was extremely useful to have on and also knew enough to say this is the first time at Carlisle with the Northern Arapaho that a tribe has actually reclaimed these children from this situation and brought them home the first time. So it's a historic moment. Um, anyway, I'm not going to defend that other than to say that, hey, I'm going to get the best scholars I can for something like this wherever I can. But it is also perfectly justified for someone to get up and say, you should have looked harder. You should have found a Native American to tell that story. You know, it's interesting. And that certainly wasn't my implication. It really was a question. And and yeah. it was interesting to hear this particular scholar uh, refer to the Maori population in, the, in New Zealand and the Aboriginal population in Australia. But uh, when we come back from this break, we're going to hear more about 
why this really is an international story. We're talking with documentary filmmaker Jeff O'Gara, talking about his documentary, Home from School, The Children of Carlisle. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Jeff O'Gara was living in Wyoming near the Wind River Indian Reservation, home to the northern Arapaho and eastern Shoshone people, when a family friend talked with him about the effort to repatriate the remains of children who died at the Carlisle Industrial School for Native American children. The so-called school was a brutal place in which children were stripped of their traditional regalia, boys of their long hair, they were not allowed to use their native language, and they were exposed to European diseases for which they had little to no immunity. Three children from the northern Arapaho tribe died at the school. Jeff O'Gara's film chronicles the tribe's fight to bring home the remains of those children. Home from School, The Children of Carlisle screens at Django's Playhouse on February 24th, 2023, as part of the Southern Circuit Tour of Independent Filmmakers. And Jeff O'Gara, you say, you say there's, there's actually a fourth child now discovered who is yet to be retrieved. There is. There's, uh, it's a fairly complicated process to get the permissions. The U.S. Army is sort of figuring out how to do this on the fly as well. And different tribes have different reactions. Some of them have core beliefs that you never disturb a body once it's in the ground. So there are lots of different things that the Army had to consider, but also lots of different approaches that tribes take. Um, The fourth child, in this case, didn't meet the initial criteria where you had to find living relatives of that buried child, of of the deceased child, in today's world, in today's tribe, and they had to make the request, as opposed to a tribe making a blanket request for all of the children from their tribe that were buried at Carlisle. I think it's going to be different. You know, there are uh, burial sites at other residential or boarding schools as well. We all heard about what happened up in Canada, I think. In fact, it may have been part of the reason our film got so much attention. Mm -hmm. In Canada, they found at one of the the, uh, residential schools, there were children in unmarked graves. And uh, so there's been, there's a lot of this recovery that will happen, I think, at various campuses and various places over time. It's going to take a while. Um, and as but we, in this case, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and as we discussed just before we went to break, uh, you have a, a scholar from the UK who talks about why this is an international story and how there are parallels to the Carlisle School around the globe. Um, And we're going to listen to this clip, and then I want to ask you about where we are in terms of truth and reconciliation in the United States. 
and I don't think they ever thought they were sending their children off to die. Carlisle has that symbolic uh, impact that reaches well beyond the 8,000 or so students who came to Carlisle and, and their descendants now, several generations later. I think one of the crucial things to understand about the whole educational experiment is it's not only an American story, it's also an international story. What happened at Carlisle has a parallel with what happened at schools across the world in settler colonial nations. Situations like the US, Canada, Australia, where settlers come to stay and take over indigenous lands. Much of the school practice and training of students was very intentionally designed to disassociate Native people from their land base. And the term cultural genocide has been used very openly by the Canadians after their Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. From the documentary Home from School, The Children of Carlisle, Jeff O'Gara, we we know a little bit about what Canada's done, commissioning a report, creating a historical record, an official center at the University of Manitoba, calls to action for further reconciliation between Canadians and Indigenous peoples. Do you know where we are in the United States? Well, we're not there. Right. <laughs> and I think... I think there's there has certainly been talk of and and some support for doing a truth and reconciliation process here as they did in Canada as they did in South Africa when apartheid came to an end. Um, it it hasn't happened. We do now have for the first time uh, at the Department of Interior a secretary who is Native American, Deb Holland, and she did start an initiative to basically dig deep into the boarding school history and investigate it, find out, you know, what do we really know? Um, how many children did die? But not just that. What really was going on there? What, what, what's been left out of the history books? Uh, what can we find out? So that's a beginning. Um, and it may lead to some policies and some efforts to do the kind of generational healing that I think a lot of folks on reservations and in tribes feel is necessary. But that hasn't happened yet. Uh, whereas in Canada, with the Truth and Healing um, um, initiative that they did there, they actually empowered tribal members to go out and do some of that research and find some of those unmarked cemeteries, for example. Um, I think that's a it would be an important step, but we're we're kind of at the beginning of that. That you know that journey to healing is going to be a long one, um, but it's important to get this far. And when you listen to people like Yufna Soldier Wolf, I mean, this sounds like such a kind of downer of a story, but in fact, there's something really upbeat about their discovery that through their effort and their kind of tireless persistence, they could make this happen. They could bring these children home. I don't want to give away the, you know, the ending of the story, but there's some, there's some real triumph in there, and you can see what it does for a community like the Northern Arapaho at Wind River. And that's probably one element, bringing the remains of these children home and giving them proper tribal burials. What other, I mean, you have personal relationships that you had before you embarked on making this documentary. What other kinds of things have you heard that would help some of these tribal nations to heal? 
Uh, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to speak for them. Um, uh, they, there are so many capable people like Yufna, who you will hear in uh, in the documentary um, speaking, and as well as others like Sonny Goggles, who we heard earlier in one of the clips. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got the leadership, and they know what their problems are. Um, we empower a lot of a lot of communities to deal with their issues, and I think that's always the right way to do it, whether it's Native American or anybody else. Uh, not to come in and do something parental to help them, but in fact, give them the tools and the power they need to work on the problems that they have. If you look at the the money that's put into education, we still have boarding schools. They're much more sympathetic to including curricula that covers cultural and, and language and other things from tribal um, groups, but they're way underfunded. If you look at the per student money that's invested in education, um, on in these current existing boarding schools, tribal schools, it's way lower than we even put into like Job Corps. So those are simple things. You know, sometimes it is just about investment, about really putting your money where your mouth is. Uh, I don't think it's about coming in and you know telling people what's right for them and what they need to do. They, they've had that. That's what the boarding schools were all about. Didn't work. Right. But there are plenty of things that they would identify that could be done that would help economic development on reservations, for instance, that, that kind of thing. Um, we could do more of that. And the government can do more of that. We individually can do that. And certainly one of the things I've learned over time is you just got to show up. We in the non-Native community need to, need to be real neighbors. We need to show up for each other. Do you think that there's some white healing that needs to go on here too? I mean, do whites need to heal from the trauma they perpetrated? Uh, that's an interesting question because if we if we say it's generational that you can be harmed by something like the boarding schools, is it also generational that if your ancestors perpetrated that, you in fact are also in some way affected or damaged by it? Um, I, I would give that a lot of thought. I think what we need, the non-Indian community needs, is just the 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 largeness of mind and heart to accept our full history, mm-hmm. um, not to kind of erase the parts of it that don't you know, lead to the city on the hill and that sort of triumphalist version. Um, I think we're stronger when we do that, when we acknowledge the mistakes we made. You talked about events in Wilmington. Um, we all know that there's been a lot of controversy around Black Lives Matter, but they, they are in many ways cut from the same cloth. It's about knowing our full history because if we're going to grow and if we're going to become better, if we're going to do great new things in the future, we're only going to do it if we're aware of the mistakes we made, of the wrongs we committed, um, and that allows us, that frees us to go ahead and do something better now. Well, that sounds like quite a speech. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no apology necessary. I mean, I, I think it's important for white people to be uh, introspective about this and, and, and certainly listen to communities of color about what would be helpful, but I, I think part of... The message that that I've gotten from some communities of color is white people need to figure some stuff out on their own. I think that's of- right, Rachel. And I, and I think when I say, you know, one of the things that I've learned is you got to show up right. and keep showing up. Don't be somebody who parachutes in and then runs away like a lot of us journalists do, but keep showing up. The other thing somewhat contradictory that I often say is you got to show up and then you got to get out of the way. So a filmmaker like me needs to step aside and let some Native American producers step up and start producing the next chapter of the story. 
which you are doing. Can we talk a little bit about how you shot this? Because you've got some incredible footage of majestic cliffs and a winding river and uh, just uh, green expanses. And I'm, is that drone footage? That's well, some of it is, yeah, yeah. In fact, I I want to tell a drone story, but then I want to give away the ending of the of the documentary. <laughs> um, I mean, we've got you know, talk about a gimme in Wyoming. You've got this beautiful landscape on the Wind River Reservation. You've got this beautiful landscape. Um, we've got the best backdrops you could imagine, and I don't have to work too hard for that. You just need to get out there with a camera, you know, and show it. Um, the, probably the most interesting thing is we were allowed to shoot some ceremonial things the gathering of um, the cedaring materials on Togadi Pass, the blessings that they did in the cemetery, um, tribal elders, you know, who are very cautious about what they will release to the larger world, were really generous with us. They let us come into the ceremonial tent. They let us be with them. And some of them spoke in the most heartrending way on camera about what they were going through and what their ancestors had gone through. So really, if I were talking about what, what was it hard to do in terms of shooting, I don't know how, if hard is the right word, but those were the most privileged moments for us. And when you think of those privileged moments, were there any that you captured that you thought, I should not include this? They may not fully realize or, you know, and I, again, yeah. I don't want to give anything away about the ending either, but uh, were there moments that you had to kind of step back and say, this this isn't right to show this. Oh yeah, yeah, and I can I can tell you openly. I'll give you just a good example of what that is. We we went to Togadi. We were invited to come to Togadi when the youth and the elders went to gather, as I say, the herbs, the things from nature that they use in their cedaring ceremonies. They brought with them the pipe. Now the you'll, you'll hear it in the documentary. The tribe identifies with a pipe, and I don't want to say much more than that. But it's a real thing. And one of the rules was, for us, you don't film the pipe. No one sees the pipe. It's used during Sundance. It's used in important moments, and it was used on Togadi Pass. But, boy, you know, their generosity in letting us be there, we had to reciprocate by being absolutely sure that the camera didn't just kind of, you know, sway over there and capture an image that they did not want and really religiously could not allow us to get so yeah, there there was there was some of that, but again, what's astonishing is how willing they were to let us into their hearts and and into their ceremonies. So the Carlisle School and the the, the three or the four children that we know of uh, mm-hmm. from the Arapaho, the Northern Arapaho tribe that passed away at the Carlisle School, that was in the late nineteenth century. How many of the people in your film? were, um, would have heard direct stories from the elders? How close were they to some of the firsthand accounts? There were, among the older members of the delegation who were, in fact, elders, some who had uh, fathers and grandfathers, one of whom I think had gone to Carlisle, maybe two had gone to Carlisle. So they had some direct experience. Of course, not every everyone who went to Carlisle passed away there. Some of them would come back to reservations and continue their lives. And if they didn't go there, they often went to other boarding schools. So Betty Friday, one of the people who's in the, in the documentary, um, she had gone to a boarding school in Oklahoma. Um, 
I think maybe it was Kansas, but in any case, she had been sent away to a boarding school. In later years, in other words, after that initial period of boarding schools like Carlisle, sometimes they have been and still are an escape valve for young people on reservations who are struggling, who are having problems of any kind. Might be a family disruption, might be something, bad influences among their peers. Um, so there are, in fact, boarding schools today that serve a, a very useful purpose. I, I think I said earlier, they're often underfunded, but they're there. And it is one of the options that uh, the Native American community has. So that didn't really answer your question too much. Every family has a story of a, an older person, a grandparent or whoever it might be, who will talk about running away from school, running away from a boarding school. Mm-hmm. It just It's just there. And you've lost some of the older people that were in this film. That's pretty heartbreaking. Um, we had, in the initial delegation that went back, I guess you would say, the term elder, I, I want to be a little careful how I use it, but we had five people that I think could be described as elders. Three of them have passed away since we finished filming. Two of them, good friends. I'm so sorry. And that is this edition of Coastline. Jeff O'Gara, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Rachel. I really enjoyed talking to you. Likewise, the film is Home from School, The Children of Carlisle. Thanks also to West Virginia Public Broadcasting in Charleston. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell, who also engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. Find us at WHQR's Coastline, hosted by, or just send an email to coastline at whqr.org. You can find this episode, along with details and resources, at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.